it is a wonderful problem to have when, when my, my church family just wants to keep talking with one another. I, I love that. And it's one of my favorite things to get to stand up here and just kind of watch you guys connect with and love on one another. Um, if you have a Bible, we're going to dive in because we, we have a lot we're going to try to cover today in a very short period of time. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Uh, we are working our way through the book of Acts. It is uh, the, it, it lays out what happened after Jesus ascended back into heaven to prepare a place for us. But he sent his Holy Spirit upon his disciples, his followers, and he said, now you're going to, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, you're going to continue to do what I've been doing. Go make disciples. Go share the good news that you don't have to try to earn your way into heaven, that you don't have to try to clean yourself up, that you can come to the Father just as you are because I have overcome sin and death. And he sent them out with that message, and he said, you're going to be my, my witnesses here in Ju- Jerusalem, and then into the kind of the surrounding area of Judea, and then into the untouchables in Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And what we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks is once persecution hit, it scattered the early church. It was almost like God blowing on the dandelion, and it scattered the seeds. And as the Holy Spirit carried believers into different towns and places, the body of Christ, the church, began to grow up. It places the gospel started to make inroads. And so what we're going to see today uh, is one of the interactions or a couple of interactions that took place through one of God's disciples, a guy named uh, Peter. We know Peter. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and begin reading in Acts chapter 9, verses 32, just a, a very short section. As Peter traveled around the country, he went and visited the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Could you imagine having the confidence in God that you would say something like that to a guy who has literally been bedridden for eight years? It would be like Don or Jill saying to Chico, Chico, God heals you. Get up out of your wheelchair, right? So Aeneas, Peter said, Jesus heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. And all those who lived in that town of Lydda and in Sharon, the surrounding area, saw him, saw this cripple who was walking, and they turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa, which is just a a city that was pretty close to there, in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is unfortunate. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. This was a, they were just preparing her body for burial. They put her in the upstairs room so that they could come and mourn over her and kind of do a, a, a bit of a wake before burying her. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas, which is her name in Greek, had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room, then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha. Get up. 
She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she stood up, or she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa for a bit longer. So I was originally, when we were going to be working through the book of Acts, I recognized, you know, it's a pretty long book, so maybe we need to skip some sections and get to the high points. And this was one of those sections I was considering skipping. Not because it doesn't matter, simply because we've talked about, we, we, we've, we've talked about a ton of miracles, and this just kind of feels like one more set of miracles. Um, and, and then yet, as I was kind of sitting with it, I really just felt like God saying, no, 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 you need to lean in here. The reality is God's word speaks to us, and God uses his word to speak to us. And this was one of those passages where he began to challenge my understanding of what a miracle is, right? Because miracles are one of those things we read about all throughout Scripture, but then we look around and we start thinking to ourselves, well, why doesn't God do that? I mean, how much easier would it be if God would just raise people from the dead or God would give cripples back their mobility, how much easier would it be to spread the gospel and for people to believe? So why doesn't God do stuff like that now? And t- today I want to grapple with our understanding of miracles. I want to ask, you know, how did it, you know, why don't we tend to see those kind of things happen? But before we do that, let's, let's answer a couple of easier questions. First question I want to ask is, what are miracles at all? Like, what do we, how do we understand them? So the easy answer, the, the, the straightforward answer is a miracle is when God chooses to act. It's when God interacts with creation. He kind of steps in and he does something that can only be explained by a supernatural you know, infiltration into our reality. Now, that's not necessarily how we always use the term miracle, though, is it? We use miracles like when we get our kids to eat their vegetables. It's a miracle! He didn't complain! Or, you know, we use miracle for when the United States hockey team beat the Russian hockey team in the 1980 Olympics, right? The miracle on ice. But that's a circumstantial thing. The reality is that's not God interceding into reality and saying, I'm going to have this team beat this team. That's simply that on that particular day, a much younger, less seasoned team happened to beat their much older, much more seasoned, you know, counterparts. It's not a miracle just because it's unlikely. It's not a miracle just because it's not something we could have expected. A miracle is something where God reaches into our reality. And he changes an outcome. He does something that can only be explained by his influence. Which leads us to the next question of what is the purpose of miracles? Now, when you came in, hopefully you were given one of these small cups. Go ahead and grab it for a minute. I want you to hold it up. If you don't have one, just go ahead and raise your hand and somebody will bring one. Just so you you can have one. There's a few of you that... Cheers. Yeah. Okay, look, look at this cup for a minute. What does this make you think of? What? Ketchup. Yeah, in and out. Totally, sure. What else? Ice Ooh, okay. Did you hear? Does anybody, anybody here think of frozen yogurt samples, right? That's what I think about. And I just have to tell you, 
This is, bar none, the single most effective advertising tool on the planet for me. I don't know about you, but when, when there are advertisements on television, I fast forward them. When there's advertisements on the radio, I change the radio station. When there's advertisements in, in printed publications, I don't even make eye contact with it. I just move on to the next article. But I can't help but walk by a, a, a frozen yogurt place. I can't walk by because I know that if I will simply crack the door and walk inside, these little beauties will be sitting on the counter waiting for me, right? And there's something so wonderful about having these in your hand as you walk down the bank of, of uh, frozen yogurt dispensers. I'm like a kid on Christmas morning. Like, what am I going to get? I don't know. It's so exciting. But here's the thing. I love these. I love the fact that if I, if I use the two that they give me initially, I can always go back and get a couple more just in case I want to try some. But I know that this, as wonderful as they are, is not the last interaction that I'm going to have with the yogurt place on that day. Right? This is simply a foretaste. A small sampling of something far greater that's going to come after it. Right? This whets my appetite... The large cup is going to sate my appetite. And in the same way, miracles are never the end in and of themselves. They are never the focus. They are simply a foretaste of something far greater than themselves. They're always pointing beyond themselves to something more important, something greater than themselves. You following me? You tracking here? So let's just play this out. Think about the Old Testament for a second. Probably the most well-known miracle in the Old Testament is when God stepped in, intervened in the lives of the Israelites as they were enslaved in Egypt. There was a Pharaoh. He was the most powerful ruler in the world at that time. He had an army that was second to none. They were enslaved. They were crying out to God and God interceded. He sent a guy named Moses, a stutterer, and he said, you're going to free my people. And God used 10 sample cups of his power, we call them plagues, to be systematically begin to weaken the control that Pharaoh felt that he had. Those plagues were not the end in and of themselves, however. They were like a sample cup where God said, hey, listen, I'm just going to point out that this God that you worship, Ra, the sun God, you think he's a God? Look, I'm going to make the sun disappear. You're not even going to have light anywhere but upon my people because I'm God and Ra is not God. Oh, you worship the Nile River. Makes sense since you guys live in a desert area and everything comes from the Nile. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn the river to blood. I'm going to completely make it impossible for any life there because I'm going to remind you that I am God. You know, Hecate or whatever other God that you worship is not. And so what God was doing through those plagues, through those sample cups, was pointing to the fact that the gods, the pantheon of gods that Egypt worshipped, weren't gods at all, and that he was God. And then, he, after, after Pharaoh relents and says, fine, leave, God leads his people out, and they find themselves on the, on the edge of the Red Sea. And all of a sudden, they look behind them, and here comes the Egyptian army, because once Pharaoh realized, dude, I have just lost face. People no longer think I am powerful because of what just happened, and I've just let go of all of my slave labor. 
I got to rectify this. So he sends his powerful army out to bring the, the Egyptian sl- or the, the Israelite slaves back. And now the Israelites are standing on the edge of the Red Sea. The water is like the, the, the anvil, and the Egyptian army is like the hammer coming to crush them. And God says, let me give you one more sample cup. And he parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk through on dry ground. And then when the Egyptian army tries to follow, he comes crushing the waters back down, decimating the most powerful army in the world without the Israelites ever having to raise a hand. And those and so many other moments throughout that journey into the promised land were like sample cups, not the end in and of themselves, but simply pointing to the fact that God is God, And that he can provide, protect, and direct their lives. He is worth trusting. And I find it so fascinating and so telling that throughout the rest of the Bible, through the Psalms, through the Proverbs, through the New Testament, the Israelites are constantly, constantly pointing back to that moment and saying, we have seen God's faithfulness. And so we can trust him in these new dark valleys that we find ourselves facing with these new enemies that seem so overwhelming. So that's the Old Testament. There's so many others I could pull out. But I just want to remind us that it's not the miracle that can't be explained apart from anything other than God intervening. The miracle is not the end. It is simply a sample cup pointing to something greater than itself. Let's take the New Testament too. Jesus did a bunch of miracles. I I had a couple of them thrown up here on the board. He, He changed water into wine in a wedding. He, he fed thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. He did it not once, but twice. He healed cripples, literally gave them their mobility back. He gave sight to the blind. At one point, he told a stormy sea to stop, and the wind and the waves ceased. He cleansed lepers of their skin diseases. He casted out demons. He even raised a guy named Lazarus from the dead. These are just a few of the many miracles that Jesus did. But again, I'll point out that the miracles were not the end in and of themselves. They pointed to something greater. And the way I know that this is true is that they weren't permanent. I mean, the wine ran out. Uh, You you know, those who had been given sight back, ultimately, as their bodies decayed, they lost their sight. And ultimately, even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, only had a few more years of life before he died again. These are not permanent things. They're simply a foretaste of something greater. And they pointed to a couple things. One thing is they, they confirmed what Jesus said was true. Namely, that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is beginning to break into this reality. God's will is being done even if it's only momentarily. The wounded are healed. The hurting are consoled. The lonely are restored back into relationship. The dead have new life breathed into them. The kingdom of God is at hand. It also confirmed that Jesus was who he said he was and he could do what he said he could do. I think probably the best example of this is when when there is a group of men who have a friend who's crippled. And they hear that Jesus is in town, so they take him there to the house where Jesus is staying. And there's so many people stuffed into this little house that they can't get inside, so they end up tearing away the roof tiles so they can lower their buddy into the middle of the crowd, right? Right into Jesus' lap. And Jesus looks at this guy who hasn't walked 
in years. And he has compassion on him and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, there were some Pharisees, some teachers of the law that were in the group, kind of there to hear what this this supposed rabbi Jesus had to say. And they were offended at Jesus' words. How dare this man think that he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins, right? And so they thought what he was saying was heretical and wrong. And Jesus looks at them and he goes, hey, listen, which is easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or get up, take up your mat and walk? And and just in case you're, you're not sure which the answer is, neither of them are possible apart from God, right? None of those things can happen unless God is the one doing it. He says, okay. You know what? Just so you know that I have the power to forgive sins, get up, pick up your mat, and walk home. And sure enough, the guy does that. What I find so interesting is that Jesus didn't start with healing the man's malady. He didn't start with giving the guy his mobility back. Jesus did that almost more as an afterthought. And this is a reminder to us that at the end of the day, our physical well-being... The healing of our body is not the end in and of itself. Sometimes God intervenes. Sometimes God heals somebody of cancer completely. Sometimes God takes a a tumor from their brain away completely. Sometimes God will break an addiction like this. I've heard people who say, you know, I, I had this strong addiction to smoking, and one day God just took it away completely. Sometimes that happens. But many other times it doesn't happen. I even think of Paul, right? A guy who wrote almost half of the New Testament. And he talks about the fact that his, probably his eyesight was this thorn in the flesh. His eyes were starting to fail him. And he said, seven times I prayed that God would take it from me. And seven times he said, no. Because my grace is made perfect in your weakness. Sometimes God doesn't heal us. Sometimes he doesn't fix all of the problems that we encounter. And yet sometimes, every once in a while, he'll reach in and he will change reality and we get a taste for just a moment of what life will be like in heaven. We'll get to that in a second. But Jesus healed the guy not because he wanted him to be able to walk. He healed the guy simply as a confirmation that I am who I say I am and I can forgive sins. It was a taste that pointed beyond itself. And we see the same thing here in the, in the book of Acts. We've already seen a bunch of miracles. We've seen a group of believers who were terrified for their life. When they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they can't help but leave this upper room that they've been hiding in and begin to share the good news But they do it in languages they never even heard. They they never even learned. They did it in the languages of all these people visiting Jerusalem. That's a miracle. I mean, I have a hard enough time speaking Spanish with somebody, and I studied for three years in school. I even went down to Costa Rica for a couple of months, and I still don't speak fluently. And these guys were speaking in languages they'd never even learned before. We've seen Peter healing a cripple Uh, that that gave him access to sharing the gospel with a whole bunch of people there in Jerusalem. And just now, we've seen the way that those miracles had a radical impact on the whole communities. Go back to uh, verse... uh, Where are we going? Ah, Let's go ahead and go to verse 35. After Peter heals Aeneas, 
we read that all those who lived in the town of Lydda and in Sharon saw this guy who had been healed and they, they turned to the Lord. And then later on, when, once he goes to Joppa and he heals this woman, Tabitha, breathing life back into her, we see in verse 42, this became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. The miracle of giving this guy his mobility back, the miracle of raising a woman from the dead, sample cups, a taste, not the end in and of itself. It pointed beyond itself to something greater. So here's the point that I'm driving at this morning. Miracles are temporary Gifts or intercession from God, they're temporary things that point beyond themselves to something more permanent. Now, I say temporary because, again, they were momentary fixes. This guy, Aeneas, he would lose his mobility as he got older or when he died. Tabitha raised from the dead, but she died again. It wasn't permanent, but it pointed beyond itself to a day and an age that we read about in Revelation, where God's kingdom and it kind of is established on the earth once and for all, where there is no more pain, no more brokenness, bodies no longer break down, people don't have to carry their oxygen around with them, cancer is a, a thing of the past, depression, anxiety, Divorce, those kind of things are no longer a part of this world. And ultimately, death no longer holds sway. That's what we look forward to, a day where there's no more tears, no more, no more brokenness, no more distance between us and God. That day is coming, but it's not yet here. And miracles are moments where we get a taste of it that leave us wanting more. Does that make sense? Now, this brings us back to the question we began this morning with. If that's what miracles are, and that's what we read about all through Scripture, and we see that the miracles ultimately led people to place their faith in Jesus Christ, then why on earth do we not see that kind of miracles happening here and now, right? Why wouldn't God want miracles to happen? Why would He just have us read about them and go, man, it's almost like He had Luke record these miracles so that we could read about them and go, oh, man, that sounds awesome. Wish I was there. Wish I could have seen that. Has anybody ever felt that? Ever felt like, man, I wish I could have been there and seen that. My faith would have been so much stronger. My faith would be so much stronger if I could have just seen that. So why doesn't God move like that here and now? I agree, Darlene. He does. He does move here and now. In fact, I was just thinking earlier this week as I began to get ready for this message, I started thinking, what are the miracles that I've seen in our church? Just in our little community. There's a whole bunch of things that have gone on beyond, but I don't want to look at those things. I just want to look at what has happened here in our little church. And I began to make a list of them. Here's some things that I have seen in our little church. Just last year, we saw Bill Nelson, who had a hole in his side for six months because of an infection that simply would not close. The doctors did everything they could to close that hole up. It wouldn't close. And for six months, he was a holy man. And then one day, we just said, enough, we want to pray for him. And we surrounded him and we laid hands on him. The next day, he went to the doctor. And that hole was two-thirds of the way closed. 
The doctor couldn't explain it. And by in the next couple of weeks, completely closed, all together. And his doctor could not explain it. But we can. Because our God is greater than, you know, he is the divine physician. So that's one example. Um, I have seen God heal not one, but two marriages that endured infidelity. Not only heal them to the point where they are still married today, but their marriages and their ministry are flourishing. I have seen God overcome something that is a death sentence to most marriages. I've watched people like Tony Pekka and Tony Mangrello. If your name's Tony, you're kind of in for it here, apparently. And, and, and you know, Jeannie with cancer. I've seen some of you face down your own mortality. Tony, I go visit him in the hospital. He's just had a massive heart attack. Doesn't know if he's even going to make it out. And he's got a smile on his face. And the hope that this man has, regardless of the outcome, because he knows at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what happens to his body. That's not going to get the last word. Jeannie saw the same thing. The hope and the peace she had in the midst of going through chemotherapy. Or Tony, who's still carrying his oxygen around just so he can get a lung full of air. And the peace he has, even though it's hard. The reality is we live in a broken world, and our bodies break down, and we are not promised that our lives will be easy and carefree. We're simply not. But to see the hope that my brothers and my sisters have in the face of their mortality, is a miracle because they haven't turned angry. They haven't turned despondent. They haven't lost faith. If anything, their faith has grown. I saw the same thing with a couple of, uh, one guy in particular in our church whose life, wife decided, I don't want to be married anymore and left him this year. And to watch his faith grow through that, to watch him root deeper into God is only, I, I can only explain that based upon God just saying, I'm with you. A month ago, um, Tammy Moran came up to my wife and I after the service. I didn't know this, but she, she struggles with uh, vertigo. And every once in a while, all of a sudden, she starts up feeling this bout coming upon her. And she told us it typically takes four, to, four days to a week for this to kind of run its course through us, where I will literally not be able to stand for a week. And she says, I'm feeling right now this, this bout of vertigo beginning to come on me, and I don't know what to do. And so Kat and I just laid hands on her, and we prayed. An hour later, she called us and said, it's gone. I don't feel anything. And, she, and it didn't come upon her. Now, is that to say that she will never experience vertigo again? I hope not, but we're not promised that. It was a momentary taste. But I know that one day she will never experience vertigo again. And that was just a momentary reminder that God can do what drugs cannot. God can do what doctors cannot. God can do what alcohol cannot. A few weeks ago, and you heard this story, um, like three or four weeks ago, a brother of mine, Kilby, who uh, his father was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor, was at the hospital. He was in the, you know, he, he was, his dad was about to go into surgery. He was just pleading with God because his father doesn't have a, a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he was down in the chapel at the hospital pleading with God for his father. And he felt very strongly that God said, get up, get out of here, go and sit at your dad's bedside. 
And Kilby desperately wanted to, sh- to share the gospel with his dad to, to be able to invite him to accept Jesus. But he also didn't want to try to manipulate something and do it when his dad is in like this drug-induced fog. And so when Kilby gets up there, he's just sitting at his dad's bedside praying. And all of a sudden, his father wakes up out of the drug-induced sleep that he had been in, completely coherent, looks at his boy, and Kilby goes, Dad, before you go into surgery, you know there's one more thing we need to do, right? And his dad looks at him with totally coherent eyes and says, yes, I do, and I'm ready. And that day, Kilby got to walk with his dad as his dad said, Jesus, I give my heart to you. But that's not the miracle in and of itself. Because the miracle for me is that in the ensuing weeks, Kilby's sons, who themselves are saying, God, are you really there? Kilby's sons have seen the transformation that have come upon their grandfather. They've seen that he is a different man than he was before, and that speaks more loudly than any momentary prayer that he prayed. The transform life, the fruit that they're seeing in their grandpa's life is way, way, way more powerful. Last week, Pearlie here um, shared her testimony of how on the heels of her husband, the love of her life dying unexpectedly, she turned to alcohol to try to anesthetize the pain to try to just deaden the pain of loss and how God met her in the midst of that and rather than turning his back, carried her out of that to the point where alcohol, now what, 12 years sobriety? Am I right, Pearl? Where are you at, Pearl? Oh, she's across the street. Of course she is. She's loving on our kids. Of course she is. So 12 years of sobriety Pearl has now had. Not only that, though, But God has given her such a peace that in many ways she now finds her identity as the bride of Christ, right? And she, her ministry that God is using, even now as she's ministering to some of our kids, beautiful. And then today you got to hear a story of how our missions team were planning on going to one house, planning on bringing a basket to a family, and God sticks a truck right in the way and hinders them, not just for a moment, but hinders them completely from going down that street. And they say, what are we going to do? Well, we might, go, might as well go visit Chico, right? And they walk into Chico's corrugated metal house that it was what something like 130 degrees in there. And here's a man in a diabetic that going through a diabetic seizure, if they hadn't shown up when they showed up, the man would probably not still be alive. And God stopped them from going one direction and placed them where they needed to be. And I got to tell you, if we wrote these things down, and I've just scratched the surface, I know many of you could add dozens more to what I came up with. If we wrote these things down, decades from now, somebody would read this and go, man, I wish I could have been a part of that. I wish I could have experienced that. So why, don't, why doesn't God move? He does regularly. I haven't even had time to tell you about the way that God has provided financially when it was impossible, where there was no explanation, when God has provided things that people needed in the moment, when God has used you guys to hold somebody else up through a, a moment of, you know, I haven't been able to share about Cheryl and what God has done in her heart and the way that he has used her and her tongue cancer to even minister to her pastors. But he has. God uses you regularly. So here's the thing that I want us to recognize this morning. God is still moving. He is still doing miracles. He's still reaching in momentarily and giving us sample cups of eternity, sample cups of what it will be like once this world is restored back to the way he intended and we get to join him just like he intended in Eden. 
But these sample cups are not just for ourselves, right? He has blessed us and He is blessing us, but they are not simply for our own well-being. He has blessed us to be a blessing. And these sample cups are for others as well. Because through us and through the ways that He's moving, we get to hold out to others. Here, take a taste. Don't you want more? And I see all throughout Scripture that when miracles happen, they're never the end in and of themselves. They're momentary. But they point beyond themselves and they point people who are hesitant, people who are reticent to let go of the control of their lives. And it points people to the only one that really can be in control. We've tasted it. We have seen it. Many of us have said yes, although I don't want to just assume that you have said yes. But I'll be honest, when I think about the miracles that God has done in our church community, it gives me hope for the things that are still out of whack. It gives me hope that he, that he can help me to be a better father to my kids as they go through puberty, as they, go through, as they are growing into the men that he's made them to be, that I can be a more patient father. It gives me hope that, the, the, you know, that he breathed life into broken people. He can breathe life into broken people. He can breathe life into broken and strained marriages. He can breathe new life into broken hearts. He can do what we cannot. He can do what doctors cannot. He can do what your bank account cannot. He can do what no politician, although they may promise they can, what no politician can do. And because of that, I want to be the kind of person who prays like I know who my God is. I want to have the courage to pray beyond what I could imagine. But I don't want to pray in such a way that says, basically, God, if you don't do this, I won't trust you. I want to be the kind of person that says, God, this is really heavy. And I don't know what to do because I'm at my wit's end. But I know that you're with me. And I trust you regardless of the outcome. But I just want to lay it at your feet. And I want to be the kind of person, and here's the beautiful thing about these things. We have gotten some of these tastes. But the crazy, audacious part of the gospel is that God actually invites us to be the kind of people who become dispensers of sample cups. We get to be the ones who hold these out to the people we come in contact with and go, here, have a taste. We do this when we, when rather, when somebody says something to us on social media that really irks us and we want to return a, you know, a, a bad word for bad. Somebody does something that makes us mad, maybe hits us, strikes us either verbally or physically. Somebody lies about us. And costs us that promotion. We want to be the kind of people who, who don't respond in kind and strike them back. We want to be the kind of people who give them grace. We want to be the kind of people who pray for those who persecute us. And I don't just mean pray God show them that they're a jerk and that they're... Sm I mean pray God bless them. I want to be the kind of person that doesn't just say, <laughs> you know... I don't want to pray curses on anybody. I want to be the kind of person who blesses those who curse me. We don't want to be the kind of people that when we walk by somebody who is needy, we just say, hey, be warm and well-fed. We want to go and hand them that sample cup and say, hey, come with me. Let's go grab some food. Are you hungry? Let's go get some food. 
or invite them into our home. Just yesterday, we got to go over to Sarah J's house. Sarah has had on her heart to adopt for years. And just yesterday, we got to go and meet the girl that God has entrusted to her. At this point, she's fostering. She, in her heart, she has become this girl's mom, and she is, going, she is committed to her. And just to see the way that God is ministering to this young gal who has not had the kind of parents that we would just kind of expect. In the way that God has broken Sarah's heart so that she's saying, I will be your mother and I will walk with you and I have a whole community of people I want to bring around you. It's beautiful. God is using Sarah to hand a sample cup to Amaya and saying, you're not alone. You're not forgotten. You are loved. Miracles are still happening. And he uses us to hand them to people if we're willing. I want to remind us that we can't make miracles happen. We can't twist God's arm and force him to respond in the way that we want. All we can do is simply say, God, here I am. Help yourself to my life. Give me the eyes to see where you're already moving and show me how you want to use me. Help yourself to my time. Help yourself to my talents. Help yourself to my treasures, the stuff that I consider to be mine. It's all yours. Help yourself to it, to advance your kingdom causes so that people might get a taste of what eternity is going to be like. And in a minute, we're going to leave this place, and you guys are going to go out, I'm hoping, with a posture of God help yourself. But before we do that, I want to respond this morning by being reminded first of the sample cups that God has handed to each and every one of us. The sample cup of his love. Because we can't give what we don't have ourselves. And perhaps the best way I can give you a sample cup is for us to take communion because God loves you more than you could possibly fathom. And every time we take communion, we are reminded of the fact. Yeah, worship team coming up. We are reminded of the fact that God loves us when there was nothing redeeming, nothing lovable about us at all. He still moved towards us and he did for us what we could never have done for ourselves. That's what we celebrate when we take communion. When we take the piece of bread that symbolizes Jesus' body that he gave for us, he put his body on the line. And then when we hold up that sample cup of juice that symbolizes his blood that was poured out to make atonement for our sins so that those sins don't hinder us from relationships so that we can join God. This is a reminder that Jesus Christ died for us. It's also a reminder that Jesus Christ lives and is on the throne. He is the King. He is the Lord. I'm spilling his blood. I'm going to take this one. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite the, the worship team. They're going to just play. We're going to come and we're going to grab communion, okay? Fippers, can you guys be up here?